Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Hope you've been well. It's been a few minutes, and so good to be back with you uh, this Sunday morning. If I haven't met you, my name is John Neville, and I live up in Bellingham, and uh, got to know this church for a couple of years now, and I'd love to get to meet you after the service if you have a few minutes. So, Well, we're going to be looking uh, at the topic this morning of Christian fellowship uh, from the book of James, and so if you have your Bible with, uh, with you, please turn to James chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Uh, you can also read along in your bulletin. It's James chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 13. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have been called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to no one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that now it would instruct us and encourage us and comfort us and build us up. We pray that our lives would be more deeply ordered around your gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to be using this passage to reflect on the topic of Christian fellowship. And this is a very rich passage that has a lot to say about how our communities are to be ordered and prioritized. And we're going to really highlight three different parts from this passage um, about how to understand Christian fellowship and things that should matter to us. And I'll give you a little highlight of what those are, and we'll spend the next few minutes developing those. Uh, point number one is that Christian fellowship is marked by a lack of favoritism. There's not a lot of favoritism going on in Christian fellowship. Uh, second is that Christian fellowship has an eye for the disadvantaged. And lastly, Christian fellowship is inspired by Christ. And so we're going to be kind of developing those three ideas and seeing what this passage has to say. And so first thing first we see in this passage is that Christian fellowship rejects favoritism. The word favoritism does come up in this passage a few times, and let me show you where uh, James develops this. He says this in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down on my feet. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What James is describing here is a church community that is struggling deeply with the issue of favoritism. And at his particular church, he has two groups of people. He has one that he calls the rich man and another that he calls the poor man. And what's happening is the rich man is coming into the church and he's getting all the looks and people are coming up and talking to him. And he's sitting in the place of importance, whatever that actually meant in their particular church. And the poor man was getting kind of the opposite attention. Uh, he was, wasn't getting any care, wasn't getting any, shown any importance or prioritizing. And James is giving us an example of here how favoritism looked in his church a couple thousand years ago. And if we were to brainstorm all the ways that a church could go sideways, all the ways that a church could be dysfunctional, experience sin, breakdown, I really don't think, I, I would actually say, this is not just overstatement, I think if we were to all write down a list of the top five ways that would happen, probably nobody would put favoritism. And maybe one or two people would, but favoritism is not something we typically see as a big deal in churches. We go to places kind of like power struggles when we think about church dysfunction, we maybe think about scandals, we think about um, particular individuals who are maybe saying nasty things publicly or behind people's back. But favoritism is usually not on our radar. In fact, if we were to kind of look at favoritism in a church, we might say it's actually an amoral attribute of a church. Uh, it's something that we can't really call right or wrong. It's more something that's dysfunctional. Uh, maybe it's even uh, lacks tactical advantages for uh, a church leader. Uh, but favoritism is not something that we would necessarily call wrong. And James has a very opposite view of favoritism. And in fact, this is what he says about it in verses 9 and 10. He says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin, and you are convicted by the law as transgressors. But whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And what James is telling us here in very candid language is that favoritism is actually sin. It's actually violating God's law. And it's such a big deal that it actually impacts our standing before God. That if you were to show favoritism in a church setting, it would actually be something that changes our status before God, where we would be, in some sense, criminals in the courts of heaven. So that's a pretty big deal for uh, what favoritism means for our communities and our relationship. And the reason for this, if we're to think about why does this matter so much to God, it's because God's law is always a reflection of his own character and his own heart. And the laws, the rules, the prescription that God uh, gives to us are not things that are arbitrary. They're not things that um, he just came up with. They're actually ways that God takes his own character, his own heart, his own priorities and values, and communicates them into the world and actually tries to uh, make the world look more like himself. And we think about what God is in God's character, there's certainly impartiality, that God judges the world fairly and justly. Uh, he doesn't have prejudice towards uh, people's stations in life, such as their class. And that God himself is actually caring for people who are on the margins. And things like our, our wealth, our, our class, all these things like that are not things that actually uh, determine how God does relationship with us. 
And when thinking about the topic of favoritism and how we actually lean into this and how we um, uh, kind of assess our own selves and our own communities, one of the challenges I have with that is thinking about what is the difference between favoritism and friendship? That's because they both actually look pretty similar to each other. And uh, friendship is something where you say, certain people get to be on my calendar, other people do not get to be on my calendar. And certain people get my care, my passion, my desires, my drive, and other people do not get that. And it's very intentional. There are certain groups of people that have that and other people that do not. And we know that favoritism is normal, it's natural, it's in the Bible, God invented it. And yet, uh, favoritism is something that is being condemned in our communities and in our relationships. And so how do we tell the difference between those two things, favoritism and friendship? And I think uh, this book actually gives us a little bit of clue as it develops the idea of what favoritism actually is. And you can see this in verse four. Uh, James says this uh, in trying to develop what favoritism is. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What James is saying is that favoritism has this thing of where we're making distinctions and that we're having judges with evil thoughts. And when he's talking about making distinctions, I don't think he's talking about basic kind of discernment ideas. I don't think he's talking about that somebody wore shoes and another person wore flip-flops at the church. Uh, I think what he's, what he's talking about is that we have two classes or two groups of people in our, in our communities and in our relationships, and that one group of people get our care, our love, our affection necessarily, and that another group of people actually get our disdain and our contempt. I think that's a little bit of how uh, James is developing this idea. He's saying that one group of people uh, get a very condescending attitude from us. And this idea of, of having contempt in a group towards a certain group or class of people is really where the whole problem of favoritism originates, right? We always gotta ask, there's some sin out there in our lives, some behavior, there's some heart issue, some heart condition that's behind all that. And contempt is really uh, what is behind uh, the, the behavior of favoritism. And what contempt, contempt does is it takes away basic rights and privileges that say somebody should be subject to fair treatment. Uh, when we have contempt towards somebody, we're actually in a sense dehumanizing those people. Uh, and we're taking away basic human rights, certain human privileges that we think somebody should have that are our intellectual and moral basis for treating those people fairly and well. And if you look at some of the greatest atrocities that happen throughout history, throughout the world, oftentimes they're associated with and preceded by an intellectual movement that says these groups of people shouldn't be treated, they don't have rights, they shouldn't be treated well. And that's what happens not only on a big historical level, but it also happens in our own relationships and our own communities, where we begin to kind of say, hey, there's a group of people that I don't think they need to be treated well. I don't think they have the right to be treated well. And that really becomes the basis or the heart posture that, that motivates and that um, out of that issues the problem of favoritism. And when I think about how do I want to work through this, how can we maybe work through this, uh, how can we assess ourselves and, and really grow um, out of this in some way, uh, one of the ways I've heard people talk about it is the calendar test. I've also heard people call it the Friday night test. 
But the, the calendar test is saying, we're looking at our calendars and we're saying, who gets to be on our calendars? <laughs> and when you think about what is most precious to you, and we were to talk it out, we'd probably realize that it, it has something to do with our calendars, actually. <laughs> our time, uh, the, the space we're giving people in our lives, we can actually look at our calendars and say, who is getting that? And is it our family? Is it our work? Is it our church? Uh, who's getting to have some sort of space marked out for, for them on our calendars? And uh, when we think about that and we uh, apply that to our own selves, I'm sure there's probably in, in some way uh, a face that comes to mind of somebody who do, does get that, somebody who we spend a lot of time with. And there's probably also another group of people that were like, oh, that's right. I, they don't get a lot of my time and my attention and my focus. And that leads to our second point. Uh, not only that Christian fellowship is marked by a lack of favoritism, but that Christian fellowship is also marked by an eye for the disadvantaged. That if we're going to be having Christian relationships, Christian community, it means in some way we're going to be having an eye for the disadvantaged. And this is how uh, it's developed in our passage. This is what it says in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And what James is telling his church's readers in this context of dealing with favoritism and community life He's seeing that they need to be marked by the royal law. The royal law is a phrase that's used in the Old and New Testament. It's not used a ton. Um, but really what it's connected to is an image that is used throughout all the scripture, and that is of a kingdom. And there's a lot of images, a lot of metaphors used in scripture, but by far the one that is used the most is a kingdom metaphor. Think about a kingdom. There's a king. And in this particular instance, God is king. God rules our lives in the world. Kingdoms also have realms. There's places that they rule, places that they have influence and authority over, and the earth is God's realm that he rules. And a kingdom has subjects or citizens of that kingdom, and we ourselves here in this church are citizens of God's kingdom. We are people who are subject to his authority and his rule. And kingdoms, of course, also have laws that govern them, certain rules that people are supposed to follow. And uh, God's kingdom is ruled in particular by the law of love. The royal law, the law of love, is what governs God's kingdom. And what I really appreciate about this is that the thing that obligates us, the thing that constrains our hearts and our lives, is the mandate to love one another. And uh, there's a lot of different kingdoms that have existed in history. There's a lot of different rules out there in, in the world. And God's kingdom is the only one who says very simply, when you boil it all down, it's about loving one another. And uh, we think about uh, laws in the U.S. It's pretty complicated. It's, it's messy. God's kingdom is the only kingdom that says, I'm going to make this simple for you. It's about loving one another. And so uh, that love is expressed in many ways, but especially by having an eye for the disadvantaged. And the way we really see that develop, that eye for the disadvantaged, is understanding the Old Testament origins of what the royal law was asking. And when James is talking about following the royal law, he's actually quoting from Leviticus 19. 
In Leviticus 19, uh, God is giving instructions to Israel, and he's saying, here's a bunch of rules for you to follow, and he says, the sum of all these rules is the royal law, to love one another as yourself. And he's he's giving different examples of what the royal law looks like. He gives a few different uh, offerings. One of them is he says, if you're a farmer, uh, I don't want you to take all your harvest for yourself. I want you to leave a little bit for other people. And he also says, uh, hey, if you're an employer, a lot of your employees live paycheck to paycheck. And if you don't pay them on time, they're not gonna be able to buy groceries and they're not gonna be able to pay their bills. And so you gotta make sure that you as an employer are paying people on time. It also says in there, hey, in the courts, court systems are complex, they're sophisticated. It tends to favor the rich who have a lot of resources. And so you wanna make sure that your courts are set up so that they're actually um, uh, places of justice and fairness rather than just uh, favoring people who have a lot of resources. And after he's giving all these examples, he says the sum of all this is the royal law. And when we think about what the royal law, uh, the motive behind it, it has a similar motive uh, behind um, what we saw with favoritism. And that is, that it's embodied very clearly um, in the life of Christ. Uh, Jesus, throughout the stories of the Gospels, was clearly looking out for people who are disadvantaged. And he's kind of intentionally doing that. And Jesus also wasn't showing favorites in who he uh, fellowshiped with, who he accepted, who he extended mercy towards. And uh, that leads to our last point, is that Christian fellowship is also inspired by Christ. And we see this playing out in a couple different ways. Uh, Christian fellowship is one, is inspired by Christ by having new standards to organize our relationships. That that Christian fellowship in some way has new ways of of measuring our, um, of organizing our communities, new standards for doing that. Let me read to you how James puts it in verses five through seven. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the one who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Uh, James is telling his church, his Christian community, that they're operating by the wrong standards when they're doing relationship with people in their community. He's saying, you're taking standards that everybody else in our city is doing, and you actually need to be using new standards. He's saying that you have wealth, uh, material wealth, as a standard for how you do relationship, and you actually need to have uh, spiritual wealth. Spiritual wealth is a new standard for how you do relationship with other people. And uh, for many of us, this is kind of the story of how God has been working in our lives and redeeming our lives. He is taking people that we would not naturally have relationship with. He's actually forging new relationships with those people. If a lot of you have been a Christian a long time, you'd probably say, I have a lot of unlikely relationships in my life. (laughs) Relationships where it doesn't make sense that person would be my friend, but because we're believers, because we share the gospel together, uh, I'm actually in community with those people. And when I think about my, my own self, I think about uh, my story of going to seminary. And uh, many years ago, 
Uh, I went to seminary and I was, uh, came from Colorado and I don't think any of you knew me at that point. And I was, um, I was a hardcore Colorado mountain man and emphasis on the hardcore. And uh, I was, I had a giant scraggly beard. I had hair that was just crazy. It was nuts. <laughs> and, and I would wear parkas that had all these like homemade patches on it. And I show up to seminary, and this is a seminary that's a conservative Presbyterian seminary in eastern Missouri. And so kind of an unlikely place for somebody like me to actually go to. And so I show up there. I'm very clearly a fish out of water. <laughs> so, and I don't look like everybody else, and everybody else doesn't look like me. And, you know, I probably had a few little judgy thoughts, and people probably had a few little judgy thoughts also. And... Um, and I thought, you know, these aren't my people, right? And really what was happening over the, especially the first couple of years of seminary, God was doing a lot of kind of gospel work in my heart. And, and as that was happening, I began to find certain things were happening in my community, my relationships. And uh, I noticed that uh, the people I felt kind of distant from, the people I felt kind of arm's length from, actually had a lot of just affection for them. And I felt affection. And um, I noticed things like they began to appear on my calendar, like we were saying. <laughs> I wanted to make time for these relationships. And I noticed um, things like I was interested in people, those the people that were across the aisle from me in some ways, and wanted to learn about their lives, learn about their stories, and wanted to even make myself vulnerable to them, wanted to share about weaknesses and, and things where I wish I was a better person than I am. And so uh, what was happening was very clearly God was working in my real life to build unlikely relationships, uncommon, uncommon bonds with people. And I was, after a couple of years, I kind of noticed, I'm like, gosh, that's happened. I remember a couple of years ago, I felt kind of distant from people. And, you know, it might've been that the hair was shorter, the beard was a little more trimmed up also, but it was, <laughs> might've been a little bit of that, but it was also, um, you know, I was um, like, gosh, I really love these people actually, you know, and, and, um, I was thinking, but why is that? How did that happen? You know, I don't know what that is. I guess say something generic and fluffy, but, but what is really happening actually? And um, I remember I was in church one day and I was kind of, um, uh, my, my church was literally on the, the line, the city line between the actual, the suburbs and the city itself. And we were literally on one side of the streets and on the other side of the street was the, the suburbs and the other side of the street was the city. And, I remember looking at the, the sanctuary, it was a middle of worship service, and I was in the back, and I remember looking at the back of people's heads, and I thought to myself, geez Louise, these people are so different from each other. And I was looking there, and I saw people who, you know, African Americans who had lived multiple generations in historic black neighborhoods. I saw people who were tech workers who spent their weekends at wine bars. And they were sitting next to each other and they were singing and praying together. And uh, I saw people who were very clearly on one side of the political aisle and people who were very clearly on the other side of the political aisle. And I saw people from the city and people from the suburbs and all kinds of people. And I thought to myself, where in the world do you ever see anything like this, right? This happens every Sunday morning and yet this is the most unusual thing in the world. You don't see stuff like this. And uh, I remember uh, looking further and deeper into the room and I saw the minister and the minister was standing before a table kind of like this and he was breaking bread 
and he was saying, in the name of Christ. And then he was pouring wine, and he was saying, in the name of Christ. And I thought to myself, aha, that's it. That is the secret to what is happening in this room right here. That it's the sacrifice of Christ, his reconciling work on the cross, that is actually bringing us all together. As we come closer to Christ, we also come closer to each other. And that was the secret. That was the secret to what was happening in our broader city. That was the secret to what was happening in my life. So the reconciling work of Christ, the little bit it was going deeper in my own heart, meant that it was actually reaching out into my relationships as well, and it was reconciling me to other people. And that's what it looks like for our church communities to think about what does it look like to have standards for how we do relationship with each other? It's that the reconciling work of Christ is the basis for how we do that. And that has the power to bind us to each other, despite a lot of different things. So that's what James is pointing to in this passage. The Christian fellowship is marked by an inspiration for Christ and new standards for doing relationship. Here's the other thing he says is that the inspiration of Christ also means that we become a community shaped by mercy. And this is how James puts it at the end of the passage. He says this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James is telling his readers that uh, the way they should treat the poor in their community is by extending, extending to them mercy and not judgment. And that the favoritism that was on hand in their communities was really a failure to show mercy. And he includes a bit of an admonition with this, because he says that God is going to be judging us based off of how much mercy we've shown to other people. And one of the, the core parts of our Christian belief is that God himself, something you'll see throughout scripture, is that God himself will be coming in person to actually hold each of us individually to account. And the life we've lived, the things we've done, the things we've felt and thought are all gonna be subject to God's scrutiny and his, uh, his judgment even. And what James is doing interestingly here is he's saying that our mercy or absence of mercy is actually be one of the things that God looks at. And it matters a lot to God. And uh, that maybe changes a little bit of how we think about that, the final judgment. But God is coming into the world to see whether mercy has been shown towards other people. Important thing. And the passage ends with the phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. And as much as we will be judged how much we show mercy or how much we don't, a question that comes up for us, is God going to show us any mercy when he judges us? And if you remember about what we said earlier about um, contempt showing discrimination towards other people, that's actually the secret to what God's going to do when he comes to judge us in person. How can he show mercy towards us? What is the basis for that? And the way he's able to show favor and acceptance towards us is because the rights that belong to Jesus, he actually shares with us. The father has certain attitudes, a certain position he takes towards his son, and that Jesus actually say, shares those same um, familial rights with us himself. And so the delight that the father has towards his son is also ours 
because we have the same position in the Trinity that Jesus has as well. The innocence and acceptance that he has before his Father is what he shares with us. The authority and power that Jesus has in this world right now is something he shares with us. And for us to be people that are really good at showing mercy to others means that we need to be first looking at the mercy that the Father has extended to us through his Son. Will the Lord make it so for us today and always. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great gospel, uh, for the, the immense love that you have shown us toward your Son, um, for all the, the care and um, forgiveness and uh, washing that he's offered to us. And we pray that you would give us the faith to lay hold of this. We pray that you would deepen um, our confidence in these promises. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.